Hello, the Cinephile fans. This is John Roca. This week on the show, we are honoring one of the great actors who ever lived and who recently passed away, the late, great Sean Connery. So many of you have asked us to cover The Untouchables, and finally, part one is happening this week. Steve Morris and I are also welcoming two extra special guests to join us for this one. Comic book creator Stephen Jones, who's been on a couple episodes in the past, and Shannon McClung, fellow geek buddy, who's been on quite a few episodes here on The Cinephiles. All four of us are diving in to this incredible film from director Brian De Palma and writer David Mamet. He stars Kevin Costner, as I mentioned, the late great Sean Connery, Charles Martin Smith, a great Andy Garcia, Robert De Niro as Al Capone, and Billy Drago as Nitty, along with assorted other great character actors and actresses like Patricia Clarkson. We're going to jump into part one this week and get into what we enjoyed about this movie, our feelings about Sean Connery, and why this film still resonates for us here in 2020. Also, if you'd like to purchase The Cinephiles or to see what's going on on the Cinephiles website, you can go to www.cine-files.net. And also, the short this week, which will be released tomorrow, is our discussion of James Cameron. That's right, Steve and I are sitting down to talk about James Cameron. A lot of fun there. So, don't forget to tune in this Friday for part one, here on the Cinephiles of The Untouchables. You want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, writer, and producer, host, and host on The Outlaw Nation. And uh, look, no one talks films. I, I've heard there's people talking films, but no one talks films. Uh, uh, no one I employ is talking films <laughs> at all in this city. Uh, I make sure of it. Yeah. That was terrible. That was terrible. <laughs> I tried to quote the line. I couldn't get it right. It's early so, Saturday morning. Kiss my ass. I did the best I could. So, anyway. So, sometimes one has an idea and it doesn't quite go the direction that we think. But I believe what John was referencing <laughs> is the incredible performance from Robert De Niro in the film we're talking about today, The Untouchables. And not only are John and I going to talk Untouchables, but we are welcoming not one, but two special guests, Shannon McClung and Steve Jones, two of our favorite guests. Welcome back to The Cinephiles. Thank you very much. Ostensibly two of your favorite people, I hope, as well. Agreed. I said, I believe I said two of our favorite guests. So yes. anyway. Um, <laughs> so not people, Steve. Steve Jones is what he's saying. Not people. Wait, <laughs> wait. Not people. There are films being talked about in Chicago, but not by me or anyone I employ. There oh, we, I got there it. you go. I got well done. Wow, that was good. All right. I just like to give, oh, I like to give a quick shout out to uh, John Rocha's fantastic Wayne Enterprises t-shirt, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. That is Shout out nice to one. Amazon. Shout out to Amazon. Yeah, I think they really need your support. So I think that yeah. was a good. That was a good. Does <laughs> Am, why does Amazon? Lie. Yeah, why does Amazon not uh, sponsor the Cinephiles? <laughs> I've bought enough of their shirts over the last three months. So yeah. Um, and the reason, of course, that we're doing the Untouchables. Well, really, there are two reasons because we first decided to do the Untouchables several months ago mm -hmm. because of the passing of Ennio Morricone, um, and then because of 
craziness and life and everything that was going on, we didn't get to record it. And then when uh, Sir Sean Connery passed away a little over a week ago, we went, well, this is the perfect time. And so we're really, we, we got a lot of business to take care of because I do want to talk a little bit about Ennio Morricone. This is also our first Brian De Palma film. Oh, wow. So uh, I totally forgot that. Yeah. We haven't so, done Scarface, huh? Okay. No Scarface. We've not done Scarface or Carrie or Carlito's Way or yeah, Mission maybe Impossible. Should, maybe we should list all the films of Brian DeFalmas that you haven't done. <laughs> I think that would be really Steve, come with the fire already. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a, you're a guest on our show, pal. <laughs> So, 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 just a tiniest bit about Ennio Morricone, but he deserves so much more because what an unbelievable career as a composer! He did over four hundred scores. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is crazy. That number, and it, and what's so funny is like we all remember him for you know the good, the bad, and the ugly, and those classic Sergio Leone scores, but. I, you know, Cinema Paradiso, John, one of your favorite yeah. films. It's, yep. That score is absolutely gorgeous. The Thing with John, it's half John Carpenter, it's half Ennio Morricone, um, Days of Heaven, all the way to getting the Oscar for Hateful Eight. Right. Yeah. You know, In the Line of Fire, Bugsy, Bullworth. I mean, he's a remarkable, remarkable composer. Four, the Mission. 400 is a big number. It's a lot more than 270. Oh, Jesus. Wow. <laughs> all right, yes. <laughs> What's That's 270. Nice. Uh, I think you know what he's referencing, Steve. Oh, wow. <laughs> Something completely unrelated to what yeah, we're talking totally. about. <laughs> or is now it? I or it is out. it? Or is it? I don't know. A, a big dude in charge of a city trying to run rampant and ignore the law? I don't know. Maybe he's not wrong. Anyway. Well, um, um, what you, John, you just mentioned the mission. And, and, and when I was yeah. in film school, that score is incredible. Yep. And when I was in film school, there were three soundtracks that were just sort of the go-to soundtrack to make your crappy student film look way better. <laughs> One was Passion, which is Peter Gabriel's oh, Last yeah. Temptation of Christ soundtrack. One was the Akira soundtrack that I used all the time. And the third one is The Mission. Yeah. I've used The Mission in temp scores when I'm editing over and over and over again. It is so good. Shannon can speak that it's better than I. I am no score whore at all. I am terrible at telling you who scored what. But there are certain scores that I just, as soon as I hear them, I must own them. And the mission, as soon as I walked out of the theater, I went into, I remember I was at a mall, I went and bought that CD immediately. And I've owned maybe five scores in my entire lifetime, and that is one of them for sure. Yeah, and it was I, incredible. I would say when, when, a, when a score sticks with John, it, it is, it is particular, particularly uh, resonant. Right. Mm. John is more of a score wife, it sounds like. <laughs> Like score when he hears a score, he he's just he mates for life. But um, I I have never heard the term score whore, and I intend to use it for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, and and since this is our first Brian De Palma film, I oh, he's such a strange one because he is like the other guy in that cohort of 70s directors. You know what I mean? He's buddies with Coppola. He's buddies with all the same people. He comes up right around the same time. Never quite reaches the level of Scorsese or Coppola or Spielberg or any of those guys, but is still a really interesting uh, director. And what I didn't know, he's actually a little bit older because he was born in 1940. He was like a science nerd. Went to school at Columbia studying physics, and that's when he saw Citizen Kane and Vertigo. Mm. And he just went, oh, 
I have to do this. So he got into Sarah Lawrence in the theater department right when Sarah Lawrence stopped being an all-women's school. Mm. So he's one of the first guys in a sea of women in the theater school, which I just think is probably a very good placement. And that's where he met Robert De Niro. So he met Robert De Niro in the early 60s, long before Scorsese was working with him or anything else. He directed him in a movie called The Wedding Party in 1963. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which it, I've never seen. They'd worked together three times in the 60s, uh, and De Niro said that when they worked together on this film, it was next-level stuff. Like, they'd both grown in their respective fields. So, it, crazy. It, it, it makes sense. And he did he did documentaries. He worked for the NAACP. He actually made films for the Treasury Department. I re- <laughs> <laughs> so, who would claim to do, who have that job? Who is not? <laughs> <laughs> who, um, who would claim to make a film for the Treasury Department? <laughs> who is not? And, and who he wanted to be was, uh, it's funny, John, we just talked about this uh, when we did our live stream yesterday, mm. but he wanted to be the American Goddard. That was Ooh, his. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And, and this is what's so interesting with De Palma is the tension between the art film filmmaker and the thriller popular film filmmaker Mm. and for me at least when that balance works out well you get a really good movie and when it doesn't you get a lesser movie right um he's he's definitely part of that rat pack though i mean maybe he's maybe he's eddie fisher of the group he's definitely with coppola and and spielberg and lucas like he's part of those he's part of those guys you know well, and it was De Palma when George Lucas was auditioning for Star Wars that he was auditioning for Carrie at the same time, and they were doing their auditions together, I believe. Well, and a right? lot yeah. of the same people yeah. were going to the same auditions. Um, and Carrie, right. obviously, mm-hmm. is his first big hit. And, you know, there, there's a mixed career. You know, we have things like Body Double and Dress to Kill and Blowout that are successful. And you also have some less successful films. Mm-hmm. Untouchables is really what we're going to talk about today, is really his first truly truly mainstream big hit what i think it's interesting steve too because i think body double i i really love that film but i think it was commercially a failure and then there's actually like a movie with joe piscopo whose name i forget that he did right before untouchable so after kind of coming out of the gate strong there in the late 70s and early 80s he really was kind of needing a hit and kind of shopping around trying to find a script that was going to be you know and I equate this film a lot. It reminds me in some ways of like Spielberg with Raiders, like when Mm. you kind of needed to redeem yourself a Mm. little bit, like both artistically and financially. And then you had to make something on on a tighter budget than what with more constraints than what you'd been used to. You know, well, it's funny that you mention uh, Body Double, Steve Jones, because (laughs) I, I had never seen that movie until about three months ago. Um, and it was at one of my one of my girlfriend's friends places and we were watching like outdoor movies I'm like oh we're gonna watch we're gonna watch body double and so i knew of the kind of hit and missness of yeah. the palma like i saw snake eyes in the theaters um and watching body double thinking that like all the everyone that was there was like oh it's great and i got through about half of it i'm like what the hell <laughs> yeah I it's, do it's, not like this. It's his homage. You had a John Roca you had a John Roca Highlander experience <laughs> where since you since you weren't there the first time, it's <laughs> def- I think it is I think Body Doubles I had to be the movie, <laughs> you know, as well. Like I have super fond memories of it, but I probably haven't seen it for over twenty years, you know. Yeah, and when we interviewed Rob Liefeld, we asked him about it because he's in Body Double as a camera assistant. 
Uh, and he is the voice, uh, not Rob Liefeld, it was it Rob, uh, Rob Paulson, who's the voice uh, in uh, Animaniacs. He is a camera assistant, and he has like two lines, something about the woman's nether regions, I think, and uh, <laughs> something really, so it was just like funny for him, and he loves talking about it, he never shies away from it, that's a nice little tidbit for Body Double. But don't nice. forget Sisters, Sisters was a great little horror film as well from the 70s i think it was called sisters that he introduced that kind of introduced him uh, and then scarface becoming this underground hit but steve's absolutely right it was untouchables it was like oh a brian de palma film and i think the way he approaches this film is from an epic place to tell a smaller story and i love that approach to it from the beginning well let's uh, let's talk a little bit about pre-production obviously this is this is a weird one because it is based on a true story mm-hmm. and a real guy and it is based on a TV show, you know? And it's like, what, what's so weird, it's very different from, you know, we have so many movies coming out now that are based on old TV shows, and it's always, well, how do we honor the TV show? That ain't right. this at all. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody was trying to honor the 1959 TV series. Yeah. Um, it started with Art Linson, who's the producer. Um, he hated the TV show, but he liked that era and wanted to do a movie about the era. I can't figure out who brought Mamet in. Did Mamet mm. start it? Did Art Linson bring Mamet in? Did De Palma bring Mamet in? I cannot find the answer. Mm. But Dave, the David Mamet script is a lot of what made this movie actually happen. That's interesting, Steve, too, because everyone cites Mamet's script for a reason for their participation. You know, De Palma said he read the yeah. Mamet script and why he wanted to do it. And, uh, I mean, it's interesting to hear Sean Connery, like the legend, talking about being interested in the Mammoth script. Like, if you're David Mammoth in 1986, that must have been pretty cool, you know, where it's like James Bond is talking about that it's your script that drew him to this project or something like that. But, right, I, I, may, I can't find anything about Mammoth talking about this movie. And it's such a great, he was such a great choice because he is quintessential Chicago and he brings such a Chicago ness yeah. to it. I'm sad there isn't more stuff on him talking about it, you know? Well, and I believe that leading up to filming, um, Paramount, the the suits were not that high on the script. They were kind of like, are you sure this is what you want to go with? And De Palma was the guy. He's like, this is this is what I want to do. The, these words. Because, John, wasn't this only the second... Because I know John and I have a, sh- a huge love yeah. for the verdict, you know, and yeah. I, f- I think that was Mamet's first big or no Postman Always Rings Twice was his first screenplay, I think. But then the verdict was the first one where you felt like a giant spotlight was kind of shined on Mamet's script. And, and that's the thing about him. And this is before he starts hating actors, too. So that's a good thing, too. You get you get Mamet before he stops being an a-hole or starts being an a-hole to actors and telling writing books where you go, just stand at the mark and say your line. Uh, but yeah, he'd done Postman Always Rings twice, The Verdict, um, and then The Untouchables. Yeah, yeah. And they had used, of course, about last night, they'd used his play Sexual right. Perversity in Chicago right. for that. Uh, but no, this is like his second big screenplay. And what a and when he's still just being kind of like, like being announced. So to combine with the Palma, a young Costner, a Connery that's being in a renaissance, a Garcia that's being introduced for the first time. So much about this uh, is a, an interesting mixture of people coming together. And there are some tidbits about, about the, the casting as well, but I don't know if Steve has any of that. You know, he handles the research on this, so, but please. Um, I, I, I do have some tidbits, but I'm probably about to say this the same one. I was about okay. to talk about how they got Costner. So if you have yeah. the... No, no, go ahead, please. I don't know that one. Um, uh, so, so basically, uh, Art Linson wanted Costner from the beginning. Yeah. Um, 
And Costner initially didn't want to do it. He's just coming off of Silverado. And De Palma didn't want Costner. He wanted Don Johnson. <laughs> um, and for some reason, Don Johnson couldn't do it, so they went to Mickey Rourke. Ooh, that's an interesting choice. It's a pretty dark Elliot Ness. Wow. But, but certainly this is you know peak Mickey Rourke era. This is yep. Mickey Rourke of nine and a half weeks. Yeah. Which yeah. is actually pretty dark, but certainly more human than what we're used to now. You know? And then the next person they went after who was going to do it, but they couldn't work out the schedule, and that is Mel Gibson. He took, he oh, took wow. Lethal Weapon wow. instead, right? And obviously I would never want to have, not have Lethal Weapon in our, our lives. True. Um, and then De Palma is like going, oh, maybe we do have to do this Costner guy. And so he went and called up Lawrence Kasdan, who had just worked with him. And he went and called up, I guess Spielberg had worked with him on a TV project, but I don't know what it was. Uh, amazing oh. Stories. Yeah. He did Amazing yeah. Stories. Okay. Mm -hmm. The World War II of, one, I think, right? Yep. Janet, yeah. Uh, and, and both of them uh, said, no, no, this guy is great. And that's when finally De Palma broke down and went for him. And then after that, he had to fight to keep Costner on the film because the studio questioned it as well once he finally made the decision for Costner. The studio was trying to throw out other people up until the last minute. Well, and here's the other one, which I'm sure both, all of you probably know, but like the studio is like, we're, we're done. We've spent enough money. That's, <laughs> that's it. And De Palma wanted De Niro. And De Niro came in and said, uh, okay, I want this huge amount of money for a couple of weeks work. And the studio said, no way, not going to happen. And they hired Bob Hoskins. Yes. Bob Hoskins. And I just picturing, because I can't picture Bob Hoskins without picturing Roger Rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he's, he's such a great range and he's such a yeah. good actor, but uh, he had a $20,000 pay or play deal. So when they got De Niro. It was 200000 <laughs> It was two hundred thousand. Two hundred thousand? Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was, it, it was significant. 000. Bob Hoskins called it the best job he ever had. Yeah, because <laughs> they had him as backup. If they couldn't approve De Niro, it would be Hoskins. And well, he's like, yeah, I'll take it. Two hundred thousand dollars sounds good. And Steve, did you hear the deal about how De, he, De Palma actually? They had a big meeting apparently at Paramount, and he he sort of said, "Well, look, I'm not prepared to make this film without Robert De Niro." So yes. so De Palma was wow. going to walk off the movie if they didn't pony up the money to pay both De Niro and Bob Hoskins because they already had, they had inked a deal you know, Hoskins had cleared a schedule. He was ready to be there, you know, and he wasn't the only one Costner. They were offering him made a hundred thousand dollars, but Costner says there's an EW article about the 30th anniversary of the movie. He talks about it and Connery to his credit, sent in an email from wherever he was at in, in, uh, in 2017. And they talked about it and he and Costner said, I wanted that million dollars. I wanted that. I had a thing about it. They were offering me $800,000. I wouldn't do it until they offered me a million dollars. And then, it, and then they did to make, to make sure. So, you know, you can always negotiate, ladies and gentlemen. Well, you can always negotiate. million dollars <laughs> is a big paycheck for an actor in 1987, mm -hmm. especially if you're not a headliner, you know, which... Right. Which, right. which Costner arguably wasn't at this point. No, he t I think he, t I mean, this, this, we talked about this briefly, I think in another show, but 87 was definitely the summer of Costner, you know, yeah. like he had done Silverado and then the double whammy of having untouchables and no way out come out no in the out. same summer. Right. And, and it, it's interesting to think about when I saw Costner interviewed about this, that Silverado is such a character role, right? Mm -hmm. He kind of plays the crazy brother and Costner kind of gets a hard time for just playing sort of these more the straight man guys. But until this till this year, he really hadn't played them, you know, right. and if I really quickly, I remember I saw an interview 
about Man of Steel when they were interviewing Costner about, uh, you know, playing Jonathan Kent. And he made this interesting comment, I thought, where he sort of talked about he sort of was interested in it because he's like, man, you know, there could have been a time I maybe could have played Superman and my brain kind of went there was, you know, (laughs) but then watching this film, I thought like this is this is kind of a Clark Kent, you know, Steve Rogers role for Kevin Costner that I think he does really well where he just Mm -hmm. plays like. You know, if you put some gla- the right kind of glasses on him in this movie, he totally could have been a 1930s, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Clark Kent, and he wouldn't have been the tallest Superman, you know. But mm-hmm. I, but I think he, he, he definitely plays like a straight arrow. That's not actually an easy thing to do, and I think yeah. he he does it very well. well. You know. Well, and I think that's, I mean, the straight arrowness of this character. It's something we're going to get into because watching it and kind of thinking about it this time. I actually don't think that's what's happening. Um, but that's certainly something we'll talk about as we go along. One other quick story in pre-production. Right as they start shooting, De Niro shows up on the set. He is super skinny. He's very soft-spoken. And producers and a bunch of people are going, is this going to is this gonna work? And De Palma went, don't worry. Don't, we're going to be fine. Yeah. Um, shall we get pounds. into the uh, world of Prohibition-era Chicago? Let's do Please. it. That music when it starts oh. is just so iconic. It's just so perfect. And you just seen as the credits roll, you see these shadows, and then we end up on the that it's the title itself that's casting shadows. It's a great credit sequence. Um, one thing that we should say the casting director is Lynn Stallmaster, one of the great casting directors yeah. of all time. And, you know, look at this cast. It's yeah. fantastic top to bottom. I also love the opening real quick, Steve. I also love the opening because it makes it feel like uh, prison bars are closing on a cell. Totally. So in your mind, you're just like subconsciously thinking about crime, even at the beginning of this uh, of this film. And it feels <laughs> black and white, too. You know, yeah. I think, mm. I think the, the DP had hoped he could shoot it black and white. And I think De Palma just said, dude, come on, get real. This is a big budget <laughs> movie. You know, like you have to figure out something else. But I have a part of me feels that that was slightly evoking that or something. Yeah. Maybe. See, see, if I could say something really quick, just what you brought up about it being about a TV series. I think we've now gotten so used to 30 years later, like everything in Hollywood is a pre-sold property. But I remember at the time, this was at the very beginning of everyone rolling their eyes in America of like, oh, all you you have no ideas, Hollywood. You're just making movies out of TV shows. You know, <laughs> little did we know <laughs> what was going to happen. Um, and then we go into this top down shot um, and it is phenomenal and this and this is the thing about De Palma where I think he's good is conceptually and things like this is that he made decisions aesthetically about how he was going to fill Capone and and this it just looks it's an incredible shot there's all the red which we're always going to associate with Capone it took 20 takes to get this shot and they never De Palma felt like they never actually got it wow wow Um, it's a great and, beginning because you get the opulence of him, his nails being done, his shoes being, uh, the, and all the reporters are waiting on him, and the towel is around his face. So without a word, you've already established the prominence and the strength of your main villain right, right off the bat, in seconds, right it's, off the bat. It's that great Sean Connery and Dr. No, uh, you know, mm. madman Mad uh, John Hamm, you know, where we're holding back and seeing our character's face initially, yeah. you know? And everyone's sitting in there so quietly. The fact that we don't cut where we can read the entire credit scroll and that the and that the credit scroll is built into the composition of the shot. 
you know, very much so. And yeah. but it's just just and the po- the power that we're immediately seeing, like okay, a group of people are silently sitting, yeah. waiting for their moment to speak, while waiting for the king, you know, to pass gas, basically. <laughs> well, and that's the the aesthetic concept for De Palma was that. Capone should be treated like Louis the Fourteenth. Right. That this is the Sun King, and all people, and there are actually sun images around him frequently throughout the film, and that everyone should be waiting on him, and that's what we see. And they're also peppering him with questions. Yeah. An article which I believe appeared in a newspaper asked why, since you are, or it would seem that you are, in effect, the mayor of Chicago, you've not simply been appointed to that position. <laughs> and he laughs, and that's when we reveal his face. Yeah. <laughs> And he did put on 30 pounds for this. Yep. He's also wearing a fat suit. I was yeah, like, put, I, on, put on 30 pounds. He still had to put on the fake belly, though. Right, yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> but he is the most accurate-looking Capone I've ever seen in any version of Capone ever. Well, I think he could... The he, TV series. He could only do that 30, I understand, is because they could only shoot with him for two weeks. He had movies before and after. And so it was literally like he put on as much as he could kind of get away with. And then they did the rest with body prosthetics, you know. Yep. He did pancakes every morning and they sent him on an, a tour, an eating tour of Italy. They proved him <laughs> nice. going on an eating tour of Italy. That's how you do it. Wait, again, when are they sending the cinephiles on an eating tour of Italy? <laughs> I don't want to put on 30 pounds. <laughs> Steve, speaking of more great casting, one of those reporters in that scene that appears throughout, uh, speaking of Mad Men, is the guy that played uh, um, Hilton in in Mm. Mad Men. I forget that actor's name. I think he's from Texas, but he's a great actor. Yeah, he's he's the pitcher in uh, Major League as well. Right, Chelsea Ross, that's his Mm. name. I didn't realize that was him. Yep, Mm -hmm. Hoosiers as well. There's another Hoosiers connection later in the movie, too. Okay. Um, and basically, the, the scene is about him saying, look, I'm a businessman. I'm responding to the will of the people. <laughs> people are going to drink. You know that. I know that. We all know that. And all I do is act on that. And all this talk of bootlegging. What is bootlegging? On the boat, it's bootlegging. On Lakeshore Drive, it's hospitality. I'm a businessman. Great man, that line. It's an actual quote from Capone. He said, when I do it, it's bootlegging, but when my clients serve it on a silver tray on Lakeshore Drive, it's hospitality. Right. That's the actual real quote he had. In what's, the, what's the Nixon quote that's kind of similar to that? I'm trying to think. You when know. the president does it, it's not illegal? Is that- <laughs> <laughs> right. One of the things De Palma said, he said that De Niro's acting was frequently so subtle he couldn't see it on the set. And then wow. he'd get into, into uh, dailies and watch the rushes and go, oh, I see what he's doing. Mm. Um, and by the way, this was really true. Capone was really popular at this time in Chicago. Reporters did follow him around, and he did, as you said, John, he said mm-hmm. stuff like this. Yeah. yeah. And wasn't he responsible for the expiration dates on milk? Wasn't that a really? Capone? I didn't know I, be- that. I, didn't I believe know that. so. Wow. That, yeah, that he was the one who was instrumental in getting expiration dates for kids because kids were getting sick from drinking expired right. milk. It's like, smell this. Smell really? This. Yeah, I think, I think so. Let me, let me. Let me that double is, check here. I have never heard that before. Does this smell bad to you? Does this smell bad? You know why? Because there's no expiration date. Change, I put expiration dates. <laughs> and, and I love this bit of dialogue because it's a great uh, reversal. I grew up in a tough neighborhood. And we used to say you can get further with a kind word and a gun than you can with just a kind word. <laughs> and in that neighborhood, it might have been true. And sometimes the reputation follows you. 
There is violence in Chicago, of course, but not by me and not by anybody I employ. And I'll tell you why, because it's not good business. I love the way he does that. Someone else we know speaks with his fingers like that, too. (laughs) Anyway, yeah. So what is he saying? What has he said there? Oh, well, he's lied to the reporters, first of all. And second of all, he's saying, like, what I'm doing is not that bad. And, you know, I'm just like you. He's basically appealing to the people of Chicago saying, I'm just a working businessman who enjoys a drink. And I'm providing a service to people who want one. And here are the feds and the government. They're all coming after me because these hoity-toity uh, uppity crust types, they are judging me for, for enjoying the thing I bring to them. Uh, so it's just that kind of, it's the same thing with the drug war, right? A lot of people involved in the drug war in this country during the 70s, 80s, 90s, up to now, who uh, behind the scenes are lining their pockets. Because it ain't drug dealers who can afford all these damn boats. It's, it's somebody with a lot of deep pockets that can fund this, these kinds of operations. And face on camera, they're saying, we've got to stop this war on drugs. Behind the scenes, they're making sure that war on drugs continues so they can make some money off of it. It's terrible. What I think is so weird about the line is that I think part of what he's doing, though, he's tacitly admitting that he is committing violence. Right. You is. know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it's a line with a wink. He's like, Because mm-hmm. he goes like, hey, you get farther with a, a, a gun and a kind word. But I don't do that. You know, my reputation called. But, yeah, there's a lot of uh, of violence in Chicago, of course, but not from me. But everyone knows, of course, it's from him. There's a lot of election fraud, but not by me. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, someone else. Um, (laughs) Just not as well written uh, of dialogue. um, We cut to uh, a Chicago street and one of our first many, many uh, Steadicam shots. As we move through the street, we follow this girl. a lot of this was shot on location because you just can't Mister, find buildings like this. Mister. You know, it's Mister. So, it's so brutal because and this happens a bunch in this movie is the dawning realization of the horribleness that's about to happen. Yeah. You know, and, and what De Palma says is frequently these long steady cam shots, they all lead right. to bad stuff. I, I remember watching the scene because I was like 11 when I, when I watched this for the first time. And it was sort of like my first deliberate, like, ooh, I'm going to sneak and watch an R movie while mom and dad are in bed. And I think when, you're, when you've not been exposed to certain uh, types of uh, filmmaking techniques, um, the whole thing with, uh, uh, with Nitty, with uh, Billy Drago, mm. when he basically clicks something on the suitcase as he walks out, like that, that blew right over mm. my head. And I was like, oh, the, the gentleman forgot his suitcase. This little girl's going to go return it to him and just that explosion yeah i can only imagine what that would have been like right. in a theater with surround sound yeah well it was great let me tell you someone who was in a theater uh, you know it was great to see it that way and shocking and it's a perfect way to start this film right just when you think you're going to enjoy al capone and he's charming he shows you how brutal by killing an innocent young girl not an innocent young boy an innocent young girl like that adds more innocence to that moment for sure uh, also de palma said in multiple interviews talking about how he approached the movie he was kind of upset with how Coppola, how Corleone came off in Coppola's Godfather. How he came off as some kind of something cool or people were aspiring to be like him or liked him or he became some iconic character. So he wanted Capone to be this dirty, terrible person. And he said, mm. these guys are slimy. These guys kill. They don't just kill each other. They kill other people. They kill innocents. And the thing that bothered me about the Godfather is they're only killing people who are in the mafia. And in fact, the mafia kills innocents mm. all the time, uh, you know, especially in Chicago. So I want, I don't want, I didn't want anybody to like De Niro's Capone. Of course, it didn't 100% work because people love his performance, but that well, was his intention. 
That's such a great point. I'd never heard that before. And John, you also, whether, I think you gave me a little subtle hint mm. of the thing that I actually forgot that I do at the beginning of every yeah, show. Kind of, which I, a little bit. <laughs> I didn't ask all of you how you all came to this film. So I'm guessing, John, you saw it in the movie theater. I did, absolutely. Couldn't wait. The trailer was incredible. Uh, and I'd loved Costner from uh, Silverado and No Way Out. So I was, and Connery coming in. So I rushed to the theater. I remember seeing this with a couple of friends at that time. Shannon, what about you? Oh, we yeah. just heard. It was 11 o'clock. Was it, was it, it was a rental? No, it was HBO. Um, HBO. <laughs> and, and again, it was, it was my first deliberate, like, I'm going to go sneak and watch this R-rated movie. I want to see the first, the, one of the first R-rated films I saw was a RoboCop at a friend's house. Oh, shit. And, and the brutality of that movie, <laughs> I, was, I, I was a little scarred. So for me to embark on the Untouchables... One, you know, uh, cl- clandestine style, yeah. um, knowing that, ooh, I could get an, I-, I might get another RoboCop here, but just that, I just remember the poster mm. in the uh, yeah. in the adverts for the newspaper. I just remember that it was that it was that giant imposing shot of De Niro, and then you you've got you know you've got the Untouchables with uh, Costner in the center, and it's funny because I, I rewatched it for this, and uh, I remember I believe in the poster. Back way back in the '80s, that Costner has a uh, has a, a gun, and yeah. he he's pointed it at camera. Um, they've changed it to a badge, right. and it's a it's a for, it's, oh, a, for, it's a bad Photoshop job too, where it's <laughs> just he only has he only has maybe three fingers held up in a strange kind you of a bastards. claw. <laughs> That's hilarious. We'll have to we'll have to find both of them and put them up on our Facebook page so people can see them. Um, Shannon, didn't you also see the Terminator when you were six? But I didn't make it all the way through that one. Uh, um, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, that one. That I think it was. It was at the same friend's house that I saw RoboCop. <laughs> um, so there's clearly a, a theme. Well, HBO, HBO, HBO exposing uh, underage children to R-rated films for generations. I think I'm, a, I'm, cl- I'm a little bit older than Shannon, but that's. I remember. I think it was Excalibur, the Alien, and uh, the Octagon were all my first uh, R-rated oh, sneaking wow. in. Uh, <laughs> HBO films. <laughs> and what about Untouchable, Steve? When did you see that? Uh, like John, I think I, I I'm 99 sure I saw it opening weekend that summer that it that it came out. I didn't see it in the theater. I it was one of those ones where all my friends were talking about this movie, and I didn't see it until you know a year later when we rented it on VHS. Um, and when it's funny, I've always liked this movie, and I think I've always liked it 30% less than everybody else. Wow, really? Yeah. I, wow. I, it's not a movie I love. I, it, it, what, I, what I was saying, Wait, so we'll talk about it. You want me there. to reduce my friendship for you by 30%? <laughs> that's weird. I think that's what I just said. <laughs> no, what, what it is is that the scenes that I love, I adore. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's just amazing stuff in it, and, but it doesn't, it doesn't become a whole movie that I want to watch over and over again. Wow. Um, I know it's crazy. Um, so, so I, Steve's got his hand on his heart. I think he's having some palpitations. Uh, John is silently judging me. Yeah. Well, and as I'm we good, I'm out. out. I'm out. I can't. <laughs> and, and, and as Steve Jones pointed out, he's not the youngest guy. So this this might be nature finally Damn. taking its course. <laughs> oh my! Oh my! I'll get I'll, I'll get you, Shannon McClung. <laughs> and your little um, dog too. <laughs> so we just had this horrible, horrible death of this little girl holding the bomb. It's, it's, and then we see, really quick, just with that bomb explosion, I love editorially because De Palma is sort of known for being really bloody. But I think mm-hmm. the way he's bloody in this film is very controlled. And the fact that 
you you feel as if we watch this little girl blow up but he has this right we're on one shot for a long time then there's a series of shots and when we finally cut to the explosion the explosion starts in a shot where there's no little girl there's not even like an attempt to have there be a fake little girl but just through editing it it feels as if we see this girl blow up but they didn't even do anything where there's like a dummy or a prosthetic or anything we just see like cute little girl cute little girl and then massive explosion yep and, and then we do a thing that uh, De Palma does throughout this film is cut from real violence into the most peaceful, you know, loving world possible. Right. So yeah. you have this big contrast in the cut because now we cut into it's the morning and we see Patricia Clarkson, who is Ness's wife. She's kind of getting writing a note for him and the music is nice. And we move. She makes a, a lunch and she we move over and we see Costner's back and he's peacefully draining his coffee and reading the newspaper. Well, Coster, and there we see Coster gets another similar to, you know, like Dr. No or, or De Niro here too. This whole first scene with Clarkson, we never get the most we get is a three quarter rear shot of his face. Yep. Like they're holding yep. off on, see on seeing, you know, on our reveal of our hero, which I think is, it is until the press conference. Right. Which is where we go to next. And he gets introduced by, uh, by Mike, who is I, I can't decide what his level is. At one point, they call him chief. Is he's he, chief of police? He is yeah. the chief of police. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and and uh, he introduces him, and reporters start peppering him with questions. Another this is just another showpiece program, you know. Keep the news. What do you think about prohibition, Mr. Ness? Do you drink, Mr. Ness? Mr. Ness, answer the questions. It's not just a showpiece, and I'll tell you exactly how I feel about prohibition. It is the law of the land. Yeah, that establishes what his character is set up to be right away. Mm-hmm. Straight arrow. It's the straight arrow. Um, and then they continue to prepare him with questions and he just turns around and walks out. Um, except for this one reporter who, who follows him along <laughs> and keeps asking him questions. I don't know why he, he this guy gets special access. <laughs> it's because he's small. He snuck it's- through. Yeah, yeah. As 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 one who is more uh, the most diminutive of the four of us, <laughs> I, I can tell you all of the special access that I've gotten because I've just been able to duck under stuff. It, it's, it's like an Ant Man style thing. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And then and then the lieutenant uh, lieutenant Anderson, who's played by I think Peter Alroard. Al- Ioward, I don't know how you say his name, um, says, are you ready to meet the men? And he goes, yes, I am. And I love the shot because he opens the door and there's this, you know, literally the blue wall is standing there all perfectly in uniform, looking very intimidating. And uh, and he steps into the room and we close the door. So, by the way, I did a little research on Elliot Ness. He was born in 1903 and he was the investigator for a credit company. And then in uh, at 29, he decides to go and get a degree in criminology and he entered law enforcement just a few years before this. So he's, he entered law enforcement in 26. Yeah. You know, well, so. It, it, sorry, Steve. Uh, I was going to say something else that's really interesting about the casting of Kevin Costner here, because they talk about how the, the Untouchables, this is a very um, fabricated version yes. of this story. Um, Elliot Ness was from Chicago. Like, he yeah. went to the University of Chicago. And Kevin Costner, at least in this portrayal, um, he's very homeland. I mean, right. it's it's very much like... This guy is from Kansas. Yeah. This is this guy is from the heartland. This is and in real life, yeah. I think I want to say his parents were like Nor- Norwegian. Yeah, Norwegian Nor- immigrants. Norwegian immigrants, mm. and so the idea that this sort of pristine-looking, just perfect, buttoned-up 
uh, uh, federal agent has come in, it's very much that he's an outsider. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating too, Steve. I mean, you get the Norwegian immigrant, son of Norwegian immigrants, uh, going up against the son of Italian immigrants. That's what Capone was. So you have this like idea of what America is by two sons of immigrants fighting it out for right. what America should be in their minds, uh, fighting it out on the streets of Chicago. Having an Irish immigrant as his mentor played by a Scottish right. person. Yep. <laughs> um, and we're later on, he's finishing his speech and, and Ness says, I know that many of you take a drink. What you've done before today is not my concern. But now we must be pure and I want you to stop. It's not a question of whether or not it's a harmless drink. It may very well be, but it's against the law, gentlemen. And as we are going to enforce the law, we must do first by example. Mamet's dialogue, I just, I, when, it's, when it's done wrong, and often it's done wrong in films he directs, um, it, it can sound a little bit awkward. But when you have great actors and a great director, it's, then there's something about the unique rhythms that he writes that, that you just sometimes get some really memorable lines out of what are sort of straightforward sentences. And in a lot of Elliot Ness's speeches, I feel that way. And everything Sean Connery says, I think, feels that way. And also, you got to give credit. Look, Costner said in the same interview in EW, he's like, it was really hard playing as De Niro because I have to do the straight arrow dialogue, and he, he gets to jump off the page with his stuff. But it is very difficult to play the straight arrow when everyone else gets a chance to shine because your instinct is to go to that place, to go toe-to-toe with him, but you can't because that betrays the character. And saying those lines are not easy to say. Mamet wrote them, but they're not easy to say because they're such, as Shannon said, homeland apple pie lines. You've got to deliver them with a sense of earnestness but a spine to them. And that's what I think Costner does really well throughout the movie. And some people have made fun of him at times for his acting in this movie. And I'm like, you all are insane. You try saying that fucking line realistically in the parameters that are set up in the movie. It's tough. You, and I think he does a good job. You make job. a really good point about not just him in this movie, but like actors in general in it, sure. is that they're almost like, I'm thinking of like a sound design argument. In a, they're almost creating a baseline of which, yes. uh, you know, to, tonally that everyone else can play off of. And if you don't have someone in the middle strongly setting that up, then the other actors don't have the freedom to go to the, some of the huge places that they can go because mm-hmm. someone in the middle is always keeping everything grounded. You know, if, if you have an entire performance of all actors going to 11 and 17 different directions, then then you just have a crazy film. You know, you don't have, that's, you know. That's a great way to put it, Steve. He's a baseline because Connery gets to do his thing as the mentor. Uh, De Niro does his thing as Capone. Charles Morton Smith as the comic relief. Uh, Eddie Garcia as the quiet but granite stone guy. You know, so everyone gets to do their thing, but it's because Costner provides the foundation from which them for them to bounce off of, and that is essential for a movie like this. It's so funny. We just, John, we just did this live stream yesterday where we did a short, and one of them was on supporting actors that steal the show. Yeah, and yeah. this was exactly what we were talking about because you can't have if you had De Niro as De Niro's Capone as the main character in this film. Yeah, we would all be exhausted. Right. Yes. Like you wouldn't. You know, it's that he can come in for a few minutes and be intense. That's what makes it work. Yeah. You need you need um, John Cusack holding it down so Jack Black can can just go to crazy lengths <laughs> for high, high fidelity. fidelity you know? Sure. Yeah. I like that movie a lot. Me too. Um, so, and the one other thing, I, just structurally, it's not just that the writing is good. It's the wall of blue faces mm-hmm. and their stone face reaction to this. Mm-hmm. It is the, Because I don't think we're supposed to go at this moment, man, this guy's awesome. We're supposed to go at this moment, 
oh, they're not liking what they're hearing, and there's a, there's a real disconnect, yeah. which is taking us to the next scene because he has an informer, and we're gonna go get, uh, we're gonna do a raid, and we got all sorts of cops, and we got the big like snowplow battering ram, <laughs> and he gets into a car with a young cop, and he's eating a sandwich. He finds the note from his wife that says, "I'm so proud of you," and then. Uh, or says I'm very proud of you, yeah. and then uh, kind of makes some jokes with the guy. And... That's Don Harvey, by the way, and Don oh. Harvey's still working today. And if you remember, he was in Eight Men Out as well. He's one of the young guys in Eight Men That's Out. Right. He, I think he was just in the Last Tycoon as well, the one that was the TV series that came around on Amazon Prime. And what I think, what I think it's doing is it's almost like Elliot Ness is playing the role of the calm leader who's got it all together. Right, right. You know, well, he's a young guy when he took this position. You know, he's a young guy coming in. I mean, yes, you, yes, he was born in Chicago, but like, does that mean he had access to these mobsters? Was he raised in these tough cities or tough areas of Chicago? Who knows? But being in charge of an entire department and you're coming in as a foreigner because you are a, a justice or the Treasury Department guy, you're not a cop that's been going through the ranks like them. So it's a little bit of trying to like figure out where you belong and how to lead these guys. There's a well, and here's my here here's my question is um has he ever fired his weapon? I don't think so. I don't think so. Either. Other than training, you know. Yeah, I would say in a range, but no, never never at a person. Just his reaction later on in the cottage when he has to shoot that dude. Didn't didn't you hear what I said? Ah, yeah. you know that reaction. That's not a guy who's like Sean Connery shooting dead guy through a window. <laughs> right, right. You know, he's a, this is a guy who doesn't like to use his weapon because that's not what he's necessarily trained to do. Which is, makes the poster even more iro- or ironic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think t- um, t- there's a go ahead. Steve. Well, I, I just bring it up because I think it's important because it gets referenced multiple times in the movie. Is there's a great line between him and you said Don Harvey's the actor's name, John? Yeah, yeah. You know where where. Elliot Ness says very ironically, you know, well, he asked Don if he's married and then Don has a great reaction where he's been just nervous and sort of inhuman. And then this little smile kind of comes on his face, like when he's fondly remembering his wife. And then he and Costner have this really nice moment of it's nice to be married, huh? Like completely ironically, unironically. And I think it's interesting because you feel like there's so much stuff done in movies about like, you know, married guys sitting around lamenting being married, kind of like the ball and chain and all that stuff. And and I just felt like particularly maybe at this time, that's not an exchange I'd ever really felt like I'd seen in a movie. You know, just mm. like two young guys going like, that's, it's nice to be married, isn't it? You know, like patting each other on the back. And that comes back later, too. You know, yeah, true. it's it's an it's an idealism that yeah. he has that gets set up right from the beginning yep. is this this is a guy who very much believes in the black and white rule of law yeah and and what happens next is we see someone suspicious and they run out guns drawn and it's that same reporter Shannon who ends up <laughs> Shannon McClung, who f- ends up accidentally flashes Elliot Ness, which I think again is setting up the with a, oh, with a flash bulb. Well. Just to clarify for those at home, yeah. <laughs> correct. Sorry, very good, Steve. Good point. Good point. Um, this is not body and, double. Hey, oh. And then, and then Suck we, it, Ness. Yeah. And then we get the actual signal from the informer. It's time to move in. The big snowplow is moving. And what does Elliot Ness say? Let's do some good. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really at that moment we're like, oh, this can't. This is not going to work. Federal officer, you're under arrest for violations of the Volstead Act. Which was, you know, basically prohibition. And he... 
he feels pretty good about himself because there are all these crates and they've got the red mark just like he said there would be. And he tells the reporter, yeah, go ahead, take some pictures. <laughs> the reporter's <laughs> taking pictures and they open up a crate and he reaches in and pulls out a green parasol. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and they get a perfect picture of it. <laughs> I love it. it. It's so funny how movie structure works because, of course, it can't succeed. We're at the very beginning of Act One. We have to fail. Uh, we cut to later on. He's at the on, on the bridge, and we see that there's a newspaper article that you know says Crusader cop busts out Elliot Ness, poor butterfly, with that picture of him holding the parasol. <laughs> And he looks at his note again, and he tosses it off the bridge. <laughs> the papers came out really quick. Real quick. Back in Chicago <laughs> in, that, in that day. <laughs> um, and, and now we hear... Now, what do you think you're doing? Hmm? You want to throw your garbage? Throw it in a goddamn trash basket. And there's Sean Connery. <laughs> this whole scene is great. I, I you know the, and this is where you can the, the dialogue is so good and and Connery plays it so well. Do you have more important things to do? Yeah. But I'm not doing them right now. And Ness starts to reach into his coat. And I love what Connery does is he has that stick and he puts it on his hand right then. Okay, pal, why the mahashka? Malacca? Is that what he says? I, th I thought he said Mahaska. Yeah, Mahaska. Mahaska. Mahaska, yeah. And something that I had never noticed until last night, I mean, I always thought it was, oh, he just sort of instinctively knows this guy's wearing wearing a gun. Um, you hear the sound mm -hmm. of the stick hit the handle mm -hmm. yeah. of the gun. There's, there's the smallest kind of uh, sound of contact. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I never noticed that before. Why are you packing the gun? I'm a treasury officer. And there's a pause. And then... Connery just accepts it. <laughs> All right. Just remember what we talked about now. And he walks away. Wait a minute. What the hell kind of police you have in this goddamn city? Huh? What do they teach you? You just turned your back on an armed man. You're a treasury officer. Yeah, how do you know that? I just told you I was. Who would claim to be that? Who was not? Hmm? Who would claim to be that? Who wasn't? <laughs> Who was not? <laughs> This see, what's so great is is you see how much power Connery has, and Ness clues into it very yeah. quickly. Well, I guess it shows how important when you're casting mentor roles, like why that's mm. so crucial. Like getting Obi Wan to be played by Alec Guinness, you know, like like you need yeah. someone that's going to kind of put the fear of God into the rest of your cast. How did you know I had a gun? What do you want? A free lesson in police work. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, is what he wants, huh? you know, and, but he pauses and says he's not ready to admit that yet and says, no. Are you OK, pal? Had a rough day on the job. Uh, are you going home now? I was about to. Well, then you just fulfilled the first rule of law enforcement. Make sure when your shift is over, you go home alive. Here endeth the lesson. <laughs> It's so great. What a great introducing, introduction of a character. And also, Mamet's writing, right? Because this is he knows this is going to come back at the end of the movie. When he comes at Capone, Costner says to him, here endeth the lesson, right? right? It's a great plant for later. You've talked about it many times, Steve, how writers plant things, hoping they pay off if the movie works out. And it did. And this is one that certainly does. I also think it's just so the choice to make this guy an older beat mm -hmm. cop. 
Mm-hmm. It tells you so much about what his character is. Yeah. That he is not cashed in on whatever all the other cops have cashed in. He's different. That maybe he had chances for promotions and they got taken away from him and he kept getting put back on the beat. Like that it's, we just by that choice we learn a lot about his character. Yeah, or even that perhaps he he had gone further, but doing the right thing put him back down at the bottom of the ladder. Right. 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 Exactly. He's willing to be on the take. Yeah. Well, because, you know, who's his friend? He's buddies with the chief of police. Mike. Who, yeah, who so clearly they I mean they probably came up together on some oh, level. Yeah. That's the oh, sense yeah. we get. Yeah. We cut to again, high angle, red carpet. This is uh back to Capone. And let's talk a little bit about the Capone's music. I mean, it is so it's like <laughs> Well, well, and and it's got a sort of music box sort of feeling. You know, and it's kind of light and fun in a weird way. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would. The way I would describe that is you have this grand staircase piano that mm-hmm. is sort of like you're being welcomed into this very opulent world, but then you hear the brass in the background, and that's Capone, mm. this guy who has worked his way into this that wouldn't necessarily belong there. Yeah. Well, well in your description, it's exactly how the shot is set up. We're going to go in with this, you know, guy who picks up the newspaper, and we follow them in, into the stairs, up the stairs, past all these elegant people and people in silk. We follow a tray with food. And it's so interesting because there's the accountant, and when it stops in front of him, the music stops, and everything goes away for this moment where he puts this sheet of paper in with the food, and then we start up again. And that's just one little way of focusing us in on what's important, and the door is open, and this is, you know, this is full the king in his bed being mm-hmm. served, you know? Yeah. <laughs> the silk PJs. <laughs> oh, and by the way, this is a good time to say this. First of all, all the d- costumes are designed by Giorgio Armani in this movie, and that's a hell of a thing to get Armani to do the costumes for the movie. But De Niro himself... Uh, ha- they found with his with the producers of the film. They found the tailors of Capone, the actual really? tailors who had wow. done, and so he had De Niro set. And this goes back to our conversation we had on a couple other episodes, uh, a couple episodes back, Steve. This idea of how costumes are essential to creating a character, right? And so he had them do his suits to fit like Capone's suits fit, and. He also had them make the underwear that Capone wore, which were silk cut for the material that they make silk ladies gloves from so that he could feel fully what Capone uh, was, you know. And so, and you know, that's the ultimate of method. And, you know, do you really need to do that? It all depends on the actor. And for De Niro, because he is so ultra method and you get great results, this was something that he uh, he did here for Capone. And so this was all all wrapped in. It's pretty incredible to do that kind of extensive uh, approach to a character. No, I, John, I'm really glad you brought up Armani because I think it's it's definitely part of what like uh, Costner in his three piece suit almost looks oh, like yeah. Connery in Goldfinger. You know, in terms of Very how cool. nicely. And speaking of Connery, the interesting thing because we talked before about how much wigs and costume affect his performance. Yeah, my understanding is that Connery is the only one who didn't want. It. He threw out all of his Armani stuff and he picked his own costume because he felt <laughs> because he felt like his character wouldn't look that good. You know, Don't he felt like stuff. even even when he switched out of uniform, he's like, you know, I'm I'm a fucking Chicago beat cop. I wouldn't look this good. You know, so I'm going to wash. <laughs> well, and that and that and that contrast <laughs> that contrast makes him stand out. And the next scene where we see him in his suit and and Mike. 
the you know is going to say what are you dressed up for Halloween? Yeah, you know he really really stands out. Um, and, and and you know De Niro sees the newspaper article and laughs. I for me this performance is the beginning of what I would call De Niro face, mm. like the that face that people do impressions of when they do impressions of De Niro. This is I don't really see that in Taxi Driver and Mean Streets. Mm. It's this movie where I go, oh, there it is. Right. That's yeah. that thing. But um, it's, it's funny what you said about De Palma not being able to see some of De Niro's isms mm-hmm. when they were shooting. Because I'm just like, he's very close to hamming this up. I think so, too. <laughs> but I, I, think, I think to both of you guys' point, I think this is the first one. You know what I mean? Like, like mm-hmm. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant performance. But right, it may be it may be the beginning of him kind of starting to turn into a little bit of something else where the actor becomes a bit of a caricature of themselves, yeah. you know? Uh, we're back at the police precinct where some cops are making fun of the let's do some good. Ness walks through to his office and there on the door to his office is, you know, the headline and he takes it and he puts it up on a, a wall. And here is uh, the woman who's the mom of the little girl that got killed. Yeah. This is what happens in life sometimes. And Lord knows I've had this experience. In fact, I had this experience last night. I had a bit of a rough week this week. And then I had a friend reach out last night, totally randomly out of the blue, to tell me how much they appreciate the political stuff I'm doing on the channel. I didn't even had, had any clue that he was watching it, but he reached out. And it's that little thing that just when you're doubting yourself or just when you're not sure or if you know people have made fun of you or whatever, sometimes life hands you a little bit of a gift and gets and you know puts you back on the path of believing in yourself or back on the path of understanding what you're doing right and this is what the woman serves to do here in this moment the mother does when she says you know you, you do that now right when he's being made fun of by all the cops yep. right when that headline is being put up on the door this woman shows up to go like don't you listen to them you have something bigger to do and i think that's a fantastic uh um scene to have in the movie to keep the balance there you know for him to negotiate as he's leading these guys into this thing against capone no, I, I think he does something really great there too character wise that's like reminds me of both a, a quote that is attributed to peter dinklage and a, and a quote that is attributed to Tyrion lannister you know which mm. it's it's kind of like Here's this, let's say he is from Kansas, like Jonathan Kent, you know, like a small town guy with these, he's this very sort of good, pure character. And then he himself gets a little bit swept away in the moment mm. with the, the reporter and the different stuff. And then is brought, you know, let's do some good, you know, and is sort of humiliated, you know, with the parasol. And so he takes the guys mocking him and he puts that up. Yeah. And there's no other positive headlines at that point. Like he's going right. to he's going to use it as fuel. Like okay, I yeah. I'm owning and accepting that I fucked up, that I took yep. an ego and and then the woman is just like doubling down on that moment, right? Like they take the internal version Good of it point, and then Steve. they externalize it too where it's like yep. you know. What's weird to me about the scene is that to me it's like the parallel but opposite of the slap in jaws. Mm. Is that it's, you know, they're both mothers whose children have died and they both are the turning point motivating moment where the character decides that they're and one is accusing him and making him feel guilty and the other one is supporting him. But in a weird way, they serve a similar purpose. And and this makes him make a choice. And we see him on a on a street and he's looking up at an address, which becomes important. And we hear a knock on the door and then we see hands open up a record player and pull out a sawed off shotgun. (laughs) Very, very key plant, and then the door opens a crack, and it's Sean Connery. What do you want? 
I'd like to talk to you. And he, we go in and sit down, and he says, what I need is a small group of men starting with you. But why should I, though? Because you're a good cop. And again, this is a perfect parallel to the previous scene. How do you know that? You told me. <laughs> um, and, and then we get this, you know, which is the point? If I'm such a good cop, how come I'm walking the beat at my age? Well, maybe I'm that whore with a heart of gold. Or the one good cop in the bad town. No, is that what you want to hear? I didn't ask you, and I don't care. You want to stay on the beat? You do that. If you'd like to come with me, I need your help. Again, the dialogue is great. Yeah. And what do we see that's in Sean Connery's hands? St. Jude. St. Jude. And, and it's so funny. It, what's, the sound design is great because you actually hear it. There are many times in the movie that you hear it before you see it. Mm. And whether or not the... I don't think the audience necessarily is consciously noticing that every time, but it's there. It's really important. I think De Palma is such a good storyteller... Like he's such a good storyteller, all of his you know slavish devotion to Hitchcock, I think, in terms of how he uses a camera, but it's with music and sound too. Like, like Shannon brought up that great detail of right. He, we do hear the baton on Kevin Costner's gun, you know that clink. And what's great is that then he hits, he touches himself on the badge too when Costner asks, mm. "What's his badge number?" And again, just that little mm. like that that pop of sound. Or when we're coming to Connery, like we use the same shot to set up Connery's apartment the first time we see it as to when we come back later to see it for that special scene that I won't spoil. But, you know, like he he uses the same setup shot of putting Racine and the street corner, you know, in the foreground as it cranes down. And so he's just reinforcing that or even just in that first scene with Nitty where the little girl gets blown up. We establish him in that white Armani suit. No one else has a white suit. So we always know. Who is this? I mean, you know, basically he he rides a pale horse, you know, Nitty. He's like the specter of death in this movie, you know. Well, well, and this is I think that it's that connection to Hitchcock. I think that's where De Palma's at his best for me, mm. you know. Um, uh, and it's interesting to me, too, like that there's so many of the quote unquote artsy filmmakers and the director that they're drawn to is Hitchcock. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just always such a because Truffaut, obviously huge Hitchcock fan. I'm asking you for help. And Connery's line is so interesting. That's a thing you fear, isn't it? <laughs> what does that mean? I took it to mean like like he says later on in the church, the Lord hates a coward. What he says, uh, you know, uh, the Lord hates a coward or whatever. He's he's essentially saying that's the by being good, he has survived and he's accepted the uh, you know not being able to advance or whatever because he's not on the take and he's not going to sell himself out, but. At some point, because you are good, you're going to be called on to do something good that will push your limits or test your boundaries. And that's what he says. I, that's what I take it as when he says that uh, in that moment. It's the hero of a thousand feel. faces. It's the, uh, it's the call to adventure. Call to adventure. And yeah. he even, he, his dialogue, I wish I met you 10 years and 20 pounds ago. Yeah, you know, it's, like, it's like so as to not compromise himself. Yeah. He could do good every day if he's a beat cop and they'll let him be the police department. The corrupt police department will allow him to be an incorruptible beat right. cop because he's only there's only so much damage he can do at that level, you know, right to their money. Yeah. But but right now, this is the dream. What if you could do some real good? What if you could actually have a shot to truly clean up this town? And it's like this was supposed to happen when I was young and strong. You know, this wasn't supposed to happen now when it's too late for me. You know, what sucks is. 
you live long enough to be that guy in that moment to say that and say like oh 10 years and 20 pounds ago oh what i could do what i could do right well, and, th- and, and i, think I saw this i was a teenager now exactly. i understand yeah. connery a thousand percent i i think there's a, another layer of this is is that my feeling about this cop is that he wanted to take on organized crime he wanted to take on the corruption right. of the police 20 10 20 years ago and that there was no ally and so he said mm-hmm. to himself well if i just try to do this alone i'm gonna get killed so i can't do it but in that in that decision is this is the kind of small suspicion am i just saying that because i'm a coward right you know what would, what am point, i Steve. really gonna do if if i actually get the opportunity to take on capone right. and, Steve? Yeah. What are you prepared to do? What right? are you prepared to do? He's almost talking to himself in that moment. Um, and and also he, one more point, Steve. What's the relationship to him and Mike? Maybe Mike was a crusader like him at the beginning, and then Mike saw how the sta- uh, the chips were stacked or how the deck was stacked and said to himself, you know what? I'm going to take the money. And sh- sh- they're such good friends. He has to accept that about Mike, and Mike by turn accepts that about um, Malone. That he's, you know, he's incorruptible well, while Mike is corruptible. And I'm sure Mike said, Malone, come along with me. Yes, of course he did. Of you course know. he did, yeah. Um, uh, we have a little scene with uh, the family, and then we're back at police headquarters, and we get to meet Oscar Wallace, Charles Martin Smith. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, great actor. A, he's so great. And De Palma loved him from American since American Graffiti. Like, right. He's like, I nice. want to work with this guy. What, what's so interesting, it sounds like he continually pushed... Uh, Charles Martin Smith to do goofier things like the pipe. He wanted to push him in that direction, and the, and the actor kept resisting. He's like, "Well, I don't want to be comedic," right. and he and what De Palma told him was, "I want you. I want the audience to be laughing with this character right up until he gets it." Yeah, oh. brilliant, brilliant. Because you feel that when he right. gets it. You well, it admit- that. It makes sense if you're Charles, right? It's that same thing. Like Kevin's looking at all these other guys showboating, and he's like, "I want to showboat. I don't want to be." And then Charles is going, "Like, look, I'm I'm hanging out with Sean Connery and and these hero guys. I want to be the hero too, you know." And Brian is has a big enough picture to see. No, no, look, you are one of the heroes, but it's better, you know. Yeah. It's better for if you are this more extreme character, you know. And he said in his mind, he went. Okay, he. I have to trust the director that he knows. And then later saw the film. Was like, oh, now I understand. Yeah, I was going to say the introduction of that character because you know he is an accountant. He's he's working with numbers. The confidence he has yeah. when he's talking mm-hmm. about the thing that he knows. He he's not the he's not the 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 comic the, the comic relief at the beginning because he's very certain with like this is how this works. I live I live in a one plus one equals two world. Right, and he's one of the joys. Uh, in the movie where he gets exposed to this new world where he's only seen the exciting part yeah. and which is why it's so heartbreaking what happens to him and that towards is, the end. And that is how they get him, right? I mean, from the first moment, he has already cracked the code of how they're going to get Capone and yeah. f- every scene, Costner is dismissing him like and dismissing that as a tactic too, you know? The two things you guys laid out, I think he serves three purposes. Shanna hits on one purpose. Uh, uh, Steve's hits on the other purpose. Steve Jones has hits on the and the third purpose. I think also is he's the innocent of everybody involved in this, right? He's an accountant with the Treasury Department. He didn't sign up to go out on buster raids. They recruit him into the point where we see later where Connery says to him, "You carry a badge, you carry a gun." So he's not 
the guy who was willingly part of this and signed on to it um, initially. So he's the innocent. He's the intelligent one. They're all guns and laws and kicking down doors. He is like, no, there's another way around this. He is the intelligent male against the brutish male, for lack of a better term, right. in this film. And he's essential, essential for that to round out the team. No, well, John, you make a great point. And it's probably the thing where Elliot said, I, we really need another guy. We really need another guy. And then they titter and go like, we could give him an accountant. You know, like, yeah, right. like exactly. and they don't realize that that's actually their undoing. You yeah. know, well, well, and I think, um, Steve, your point of like thinking of this like a piece of music is that this is a totally different note from mm -hmm. he's Connery. The he's the flute. You exactly. Know? And he yeah. does and he does everything to not fit in. He's sitting in Ness's chair. He starts right into a conversation without normal introductions. He he's obsessive with his little, you know, what he thinks this is, which, as you say, Ness is dismissive of, dismissive of. And of course, the other thing is anyone who knows history knows this is how they're going to get him. And so that knowledge of hearing, seeing Ness dismiss tax evasion, if you know that that's what Capone went to jail for, has, has power too. Um, by the way, this guy is based on a guy named Frank J. Wilson. He was an IRS investigation. Here's the thing that's really interesting. There was no connection between the tax investigation and the prohibition investigation. Right. <laughs> Ness had nothing to do with this at all. Yeah. Ness was wow. going after the booze. Yep, yep. And, and all of these guys are, are fake. Uh, but he, as you said, he's based on a guy, right. Charles Martin. But, like, of course, Malone is fake. Garcia is fake. And the crew was 10 people. It wasn't four. It was 10. So it's like they made adjustments to make it so that Costner is the focus. Yeah. Um, and then he sees something. He goes down the hall, and we're in this great over the shoulder. And there we see that Malone has come. Okay. Let's go. Where are we going? These walls are yours. And we end up in the scene. This is yeah. the, you know, in the church. Um, by the way, the scene was written that it was supposed to be just out watching it, walking. It was it was Connery's idea to put it in the church. Yeah. 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 Um, Which and, really evokes the problem. I wonder if the idea from that is from the last line of the scene, you know, yeah. where it's like, where else are you going to take a blood oath? Yeah. Now, well, Steve, I have a question about how they shot the scene that maybe you know you know so much more about lenses i'm guessing than any of the rest of us on here like absolutely. you know the, well a there's some for one thing there's that great the scene kind of starts with their hands right in the foreground like it's a i guess it's a really wide lens because it allows their hands their faces and the the back you know the the ceiling above them to all kind of be in focus and i think there's a there's so many upshots in the untouchables and yeah. i think they serve at least two purposes. I mean, the first one, I think, is it just makes everyone look heroic and powerful, you know, and and almost always Capone is in an upshot, you know, except for that downshot. But the other thing is, I, I feel like there's so many great Chicago locations that, you know, if you don't tilt up in this church or you don't tilt up when you're in the court building at the end, you're missing. It'd be like shooting a scene in the Sistine Chapel where you don't if you're not getting this, the ceiling, then you're losing all of your production value. But there's another scene where, or the second cut in this scene between Connery and Costner, De Palma does this type of shot a lot. Costner is found and it's in focus, and Connery is behind him talking to him. Now, is that done with one shot with one lens, or is that marrying two different shots together? I'm not sure if I know the shot you're talking about. It could be... Um, a split so there's a thing called a split diopter 
where you have two different focal lengths okay. within the same lens. So you can have two things. Uh, and, and usually the way to tell is um, that if you see the thing in the foreground in focus and the thing in the background in focus, if the barrier between the two is out of focus, so there's a little vertical focus blurry line between them, okay. that's a split diopter. If you don't see that, you know, wide lenses allow you to have a much bigger depth of field. That's the Citizen Kane thing that he does. But they, the, the two tricks is so one is the wider the lens, the deeper the depth of field. And the other is the more the light, the deeper the depth of field because you close mm. the iris way down. So the smaller the iris is, that increases depth of field. So when they're doing Citizen Kane, everyone has sunglasses on the set because they're blasting so much light in order to have these things in focus. And what and what happened in this scene is they could only light this one area of the church. And I think what they did is they put a whole bunch of light on this and, and, and everything else is in darkness. I mean, that's why it's actually a very contained shot. And it's funny, Steve, that you mentioned the Sistine Chapel because that's what the DP was thinking about mm. with their hands. Is he thought of God and Adam and that touch and uh, the hands uh, in the foreground? That's what right, it was creation in his of, brain. Creation of man. Exactly. Yeah. Steve just uh, gestured it, so that's why you know <laughs> we could see it. And, and and the scene is just so interesting. You said you wanted to know how to get Capone. Do you really want to get him? You see what I'm saying? That's a classic mammoth line because the, the you see what I'm saying is it's from the pause. What are you prepared to do? Everything within the law. And then what are you prepared to do? If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way. Because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. Now, this is where I'm pushing back on the straight arrow thing. Hmm. He knows what Connery's talking about. Even before the big speech about the gun and the knife, he already knows. He said everything within the law. Mm -hmm. And Connery says, and then what are you prepared to do? And his response is, I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. Mm -hmm. He's already saying I'm not that, that everything within the law is not true. He's already bending on that. I, I think he's negotiating with himself a little bit, whereas mm -hmm. he sees how far do I have to open this door to get him? Whereas Sean Connery is saying it doesn't matter how far the door has to be opened. If the door is open, it's open. Yeah. And you have to be willing to walk through everything once the door is open. Well, and, yeah. the, ne and the next line is obviously I'm just going to play it. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife. You pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Capone. And that is the clip that they used in the Academy Awards when they were announcing him as a nominee yeah. for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah. Of course it is. <laughs> now... Do you want to do that? Are you ready to do that? I'm making you a deal. Do you want this deal? I have sworn to put this man away with any and all legal means at my disposal, and I will do so. And then Connery looks down at his St. Jude medal, and he looks up around the church. It is a great acting moment from him. Because you see him making that decision. Well, because he turns it around on him, right? He's like, what are you prepared to do? And then Costner's like... All right, I'm well, good. I'm, I'm in. And then Connery has to be like, "Oh shit, he's in." All right, uh, am I in? You know, it's that moment. You know, so they both have this 
come to Jesus, so to speak, uh, considering where they're at, moment where like they both have to understand that if, and Connery has to understand, if I put him into this, then I can't be a coward either. I can't walk away from this either. If I've Coster's or if Ness is willing to come with me, then I've got to be responsible for Ness coming with me, and I can't quit either, and I can't give up either. Well, I, I'm with you, but I think I love that moment so much because I feel like it's such a mammoth, uh, still compromised, unclear because. Ness doesn't give him 100% consent. He still gives mm. him a conditional, uh, yes, I promise to love you forever as long as you keep paying the bills and do the other stuff that I wanted to, you know. <laughs> and, 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 and so I feel like he has a gut check in that moment of like, this is as close as anyone has ever come to giving me the answer that I want, but he's still not right. meeting me all the way. But that's why I said the Lord hits a. It's still gonna. It's still Connery's still having to make a leap of faith here. Costner yeah. has not one hundred percent put him at ease, and he's basically going like, "All right, well, I guess I'm going to do the best I can with what God's given me at this point, which is this guy." You know. Well, and this is, and I think this is totally true of both of them, and it's the ambiguity of the scene that makes it work so well. And they shake hands, and he says, "Do you know what a blood oath is, Mister Ness?" Yes. Good, because you just took one. You see, here's the thing. To me, if this was Steve Rogers, Steve Rogers would have said, no, I'm not doing that. Right. That's, what, that's the conversation uh, Fury and Rogers have. And I think Captain America Civil War, I think when they see uh, what he's doing, what Fury is doing. Yeah. It's when they're going down to see the uh, helicarriers. Yeah. Well, but see, and, he, he does. I don't he doesn't. He doesn't come all the way. Otherwise, no, I don't think he the, comes all oh, the way. Either. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no. It's like it. It takes until what happens to Sean Connery's character, and then ultimately what Nitty says about what happened to Sean's character. You know, for him to cross all the way across that threshold. Yeah. But he knows. But this is, and this is the thing. He knows that Sean is talking about doing things that are outside the law. Right. And he just took a blood oath. He didn't say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa." You're, you're not. He he is accepting that he is going to use this guy at the very least, who's going to do right. illegal things at this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's so interesting is how much the 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 actors parallel these characters, because you have the young up and coming star, and you have the old veteran who's been through a lot, and that I think that just plays right into the scene. Welcome to Chicago. This town stinks like a whorehouse of low tide. Now the first thing is, who can you trust? Well, Nobody. Can you- the cops, nobody, because nobody wants you here. And they're, just speaking of this shot on the street, I mean, there are some spectacular cityscape shots. Now, who can you trust? You trust nobody. That's the sort Well, if truth. I can trust nobody, where are we going to get help? Well, if you're afraid of getting a rotten apple, don't go to the barrel. Get it off the tree. And we cut to the firing range, because we're going to go get a recruit. And we asked for the best shots, and then they bring up this guy who's the first best shot, and it's really <laughs> funny. Why do you want to join a force? To protect and yeah, and to protect and serve. To protect and please don't search for the yearbook answer, huh? Just tell me what you think. Well, what I think? Yeah, I you could help with uh, force. <laughs> you can help force <laughs> with crime. Thank you. It's amazing performance. <laughs> amazing performance from that guy. I love I love the button I love the button on the moment, which is he walks away and says, There goes the next chief of police. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then the camera cuts to the range and it pushes down the range to Andy Garcia. I love the way he does this moment. Yeah. The little the little arm move and shoulder thing and pull it and oh. he has the gun in the back of his, you know, waistband and pulls it and just, you know, am- an amazing shot, obviously. Badass street moment. It is a badass street moment. <laughs> it's it's like full gunslinger, you know? Yeah, totally. And and this scene is fantastic. Stone. George Stone. What's your name? What's your real name? That is my real name. Nah. What was it before you changed it? Giuseppe Petri. And then this Connery's moment here is so good. Because you notice he ups his accent a bit too. Oh yeah. Jeez, I knew it. That's all you need, one thieving whop and the team. The hit the hit on the listen. The hit on the <laughs> the hit on the back of Connery in the small of his back. I've done that hit. So I know I've had this moment in life. And so it's, it's great. It's the hits. What you, is it what you say? And then he says, I said, you're a member of a no good thieving race. And then he smacks the clipboard out of his hand. And he goes. It's much better than you, you stinking Irish pig. And to be, and to be really clear uh, about exactly what happens, Malone pulls out like a blackjack or something. Yeah, yeah. But even faster... Uh, Andy Garcia pulls his gun and it's right up under his chin. Right. right. Um, and, and Malone brought it back. Malone brought a blackjack to the gunfight. Exactly. <laughs> and it's brilliant. It's this ethnicity battle, you know, that happens in that kind of judgment. But he's testing him, and Stone is so strong. Garcia is so strong in this moment. It's such a great introduction. You know, we talk about what um, what are great introductions of actors first. In what introduces an actor to the mainstream? What films do it? You know, because he'd been, I think, in Eight Million Ways to Die, he'd been the villain in this. So to see him come off and take a smaller role in this movie, but it uh, it launches Garcia because this scene is incredible with the ferocity and the bubbling tension, uh, ethnic tension between both of them uh, uh, working well, underneath. Well, and this is this is the thing like that we don't remember now, but like, but at this era. Yeah. The Irish and the Italian were not white. Those aren't white people. Oh, great you points. You know, like the, the, they are treated as minorities, right, not right, as right, badly right. as African-Americans. Right. Jews, too, of yeah. like there were places they weren't allowed to go, jobs they weren't allowed to have, people they weren't allowed to and, and this thing that he says about uh, Italians, yeah. that is exactly the things that were being said about Italians at that time. Yeah. And then the, the end of this moment, because we all know that's not, you, you know, that this wasn't exactly real. And, and Malone's reaction. Oh, I like him. <laughs> and white America's reaction, shocked at this exchange between these two ethnic guys. Is, uh, yeah, I like him too. <laughs> just, just the framing of that shot. It's almost like Costner has peeked his head around Sean Connery's shoulder like, uh, we good here? Everybody good? <laughs> and Andy Garcia plays it so well, the yeah. dawning realization. And they yeah. say, you just joined the Treasury Department. And I love his smile. Andy Garcia, he, pl- he plays yeah. this part so beautifully. It's yeah. almost out of respect how he smiles. And then he says, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Like, all right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, it's basically, it's like, oh, I'm used to this. I just didn't expect it in the police department. Right. You know well, what I mean? To end up with a positive result. Yeah. Well, and that's yeah. why I think the casting of him is just so great. Yeah. I mean, what's amazing about Andy Garcia in this scene and in this whole movie is it's it was career launching for him, right? Like, in the same way that, all right, 
Kevin Costner becomes sort of straight arrow leading man after this movie. Andy Garcia goes from playing supporting bad guys to he's so good in this that he starts get, he starts getting cast as leading men. And they brought him in to play, because of 8 Million Ways to Die, they brought him in to play needy. They wanted him, they thought, oh, he's so dark and scary and creepy. We'd like to have him, we should have him play this needy guy. And, wow. and Andy really lobbied. He didn't want to play another ethnic bad guy. He right. wanted to play a hero on the team. And it's so great that he did because... I mean, and his name, his character is so aptly named because he is like a rock in this movie, right? He's just the quiet one that you can always rely on. But, you know, you see right from this, you can see the pathway into internal affairs so clearly, mm. you know, in terms of just that heroic. Um, and I'm sure internal affairs was probably just written for someone, you know, someone white. And then, but Andy just exploded into it like, well, look, why couldn't the guy be Latino? You know, yeah. like he great vision on Andy's part too, you know, where he had a vision for himself and what he wanted to do and create. And he took a crack at saying, well, look, give me a shot to play the guy. Like, I think I can do it. You know, mm -hmm. Steve, what you brought up about, or I mean, and John too, I think seeing this movie through 2020 eyes, the one thing that was, that did sort of strike me, that's a little bit strange that wouldn't, if you made it now, there are no black people in this movie. The only people mm -hmm. of any ethnicity it, you know, it is Andy Garcia. Like there's not even any black extras in this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like now 1930 Chicago is a very segregated country and world, but so it's just, now maybe they would have done stuff if they remade it now that would have stretched the reality of what was possible at that point or not. Because if there was probably a segregated police department, like every aspect of Chicago in 1930 with all these folks would have been segregated, but it's interesting that to me is like maybe the one thing that stands out about it now that makes it a little bit harder is it's it's a very white film. Now, are you ready to go to work? Where are we going? On a liquor ring. And he throws out shotguns to everyone and says, we need another man. And in comes Oscar with some taxes talking about stuff. I found a financial disbursement pattern here which shows some irregular... You carry a badge? Yes. Carry a gun. <laughs> That's a great moment. And I love watching his reaction and the choice. He looks at the gun. He looks at the folder of tax papers. He puts down the folder of tax papers and turns around with the gun. And we, we head out. The music is great. It's amazing. And we are walking through a busy city street. It's kind of downtown. Here we are. What are we doing here? Liquor raid. Here? Because they are at the post office. And this line is so great. Mr. Ness, everyone knows where the booze is. The problem isn't finding it. The problem is who wants to cross Capone. And you could already see the reactions of the people on the street of these having their shotguns. They walk into the post office, even bigger reactions. Yeah. And, and, and Ness says, you better be damn sure, Malone. And they go into the back, and there's a door with a sign in it, and Malone says, If you walk through this door now, you're walking into a world of trouble. And there's no turning back, you understand? Yes, I do. And this is the parallel to the scene at the beginning of the movie. Right. This is the liquor raid. They, you know, they bust down the door, they come in, except for this one is for real. Right officers! Get your hands in the air! Nobody move! This is a raid! 
and I love the reactions, particularly the guy that's, Hey, this is no good. You got a warrant. <laughs> you got a warrant. Hey, hey, you can't do this. This is no good. <laughs> and even when when he gets cut, when Connery butts him in the stomach, that it's so almost cartoony. Yeah. <laughs> well, and they they do one of those double cuts where he ostensibly really only hits him once, but right. he hits him once in one shot, and then they cut to the reverse, and the impact happens again at the very beginning of that shot. So it's almost like it's a double impact. They're the stormtroopers working for Vader. Vader is the Capone. And everyone else, uh, essentially throughout the movie, are incompetent buffoons except for Nitty. So maybe Capone is the Emperor and Nitty is Darth Vader. Either way, they're the two people you worry about. Everyone else is almost cartoonish, as Shannon just said. Certainly this guy. with Buffoonish is the word I would use. You you got a warrant. Cigar straight in his face and stuff. But it's also embedded in the actual society of Chicago. like. They're in, yeah, the in the post, post office. office. Yeah, post office. Like, and as and and what Malone says, everyone knows where the booze is. The mayor is in on it. The yeah. all the police are in right. on it. It is the, totally makes no sense that the, cops would come in and raid them. The yeah. Biltmore Garage wants a grand. Yeah, everybody knows where it is. Uh, for, oh. <laughs> for, for, got for a grand you, on hand. For all you musical lovers out there. <laughs> They now got a lock on the door at the gym at PS84. But it's not good old we, reliable we can keep going Nathan. With guys and dolls. <laughs> I love guys and dolls. I actually, I actually tried. I was trying to figure out a musical to show to my kid. So I tried guys and dolls. We got like 15 minutes in, and he's it's just it's boring. Not yeah, it's not the well. Best the the begin the beginning part where there is no singing that whole montage, which is actually really fun. It mm. maybe to someone young could be a little bit like, "What yeah. the hell is this? What's going on?" I still no, think I, the Geek Buddy should do Fugue for Ten Horns one day. I carry on. <laughs> I got the horse right here. His name is Paul Revere. Should, I I got to do Fugue for Ten Horns in oh, Tom nice. Tom Lehrer's class, and definitely one of the great joys of life. Oh, good for you. Well, Good for you. It didn't Vogel play nicely, nicely in like oh, college or high school? I, or I'm something? sure he did. I think he I did. I think it was in high school. Yeah, yeah. that's um, the best role. That's the role I always wanted if I could sing better. Yeah. Um, okay, but but this was a digression. <laughs> <We> digress. <laughs> Although that guy does look like he belongs in Guys and Dolls. Yeah. He does. <laughs> and we're in a restaurant, and uh, our guys are celebrating, and. I don't remember who is it. Who is it that asks what the St. Jude is? Costner does, because he doesn't know. Costner Yeah, because Connery calls him a heathen. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. (laughs) Got him with the heathen. That is my call box key. And that is St. Jude. Santo Jude. He's a patron saint of the lost cause. And policeman. And actors... Is he the patron saint of actors? I think we said it. Lost causes. I think. We yeah. Said it. <laughs> I, th- I think that's why an actors adopted him as yeah. their as their as their. Uh, very very team. true. Um, and the camera is sort of circling around, and they ask uh, George, "What do you want to be? I want to be a cop." Lost causes and policemen. Which do you want to be? I want to be a cop. You do? Yeah. Why? To protect a property in I love everything about Andy Garcia's performance in this. Oh yeah. And then yeah. the door opens and they all draw, including our accountant. That's great. 
and it's the reporter. It's okay if I get a picture of you and your men? Yeah, but not for publication, just for us. Anything you say, Mr. Ness. And the four guys pose for a picture. Oh, it's such a good, it's such a good photo. It's such a photo of that time. The very uh, stoic guy, you know, looking, looking into Cameron, not a, not a, not a semblance of a smile. Well, in particular Connery, I think, because I think Connery, because he's the generation earlier, he is the full, like, you have to stand completely still for 30 seconds to take a picture. Yeah. And the other guys are more, I mean, it does look like a guy who's, you know, born in the probably in the 1800s next to the guys that were born in the 1900s you know you know people made a connection to uh, the rock with that being possibly james bond for those of you who've ever and so maybe some because this is going to be part one and there'll be a part two but like maybe you guys should do some homework for those who have a little bit extra time during this uh, covid situation go watch molly mcguire's and tell me that that character isn't in some way the older version Connery isn't playing the older version of that character that he plays mm-hmm. in Molly Maguire's that he plays here, right? Uh, uh, an uh, an altruistic policeman who is sent in, and it's a real character, it's a real person that existed, sent in to infiltrate the Molly Maguire's. But there's a connection to how he's playing him uh, here in the movie as well. And you know I what? think on jo- on John's point, I think Sean Connery's character in this film is the uh, Zar- in Zardoz. He's the future version <laughs> of. Um- <laughs> Well, he doesn't live out of this film, so, but anyway, all right. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I think John's totally right, and I apologize. I just had to bring up Zardoz. Any, anytime, yeah. I will now make it my mission to every time I appear on the show to try to bring up Zardoz if I can work it into the I think, that's a, I think that's a worthy cause. Life goes on. <laughs> a man become preeminent. He's expected to have enthusiasms. 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 Yeah. This is such <laughs> enthusiasm. These three scenes edited together, Steve, and you know, you're you're a editor and you're a, a, a filmmaker. They are so perfectly edited. From one moment of happiness and joy, da 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 da, you know, we're doing this to a laughing around the table, which because those after you've seen the movie, this feels almost the last time they are fully happy together and then mm-hmm. boom right to De Niro so you can't even enjoy the joy for just a second because we cut from that picture we fade into De Niro standing there having his or rather Capone having his uh, moment with these guys uh, with the baseball bat you're, you're right I think it is it is a dissolve because there's a lot of really mm-hmm. interesting dissolves mostly to Capone yeah and a dissolve is a thing that is it's not frowned upon in film, but it's always a, you don't want to overuse it. And it's rarely used like this. Mm-hmm. The slow dissolve from one location to another, from one set of characters to another. Yeah. It, it, it's usually used for passage of time in different ways. Um, so it, it really stands out here. And this speech is so weird. Oh my God. What am I? What draws my admiration? What is that which gives me joy? Baseball. But his logic makes sense, Steve. Absolutely. And I mean, the speech is so good, right? And like speaking to Johnson, it it is a great. If it didn't end the way it ended, it is a very good speech, Mm. like from like a Phil Jackson, you know, kind of uh, inspiring your team, you know, like. A man. A man stands alone at a plate. This is the time for what? For individual achievement. 
individual achievement. You know? <laughs> well, and, and, I, and I think I totally agree. It is a brilliant metaphor. Yeah. When you are up to bat, individual achievement. But in the field, what? Part of a team. Plus, it's topical because it's baseball, which is the big American pastime at that time. The Chicago Cubs are huge Mm -hmm. at this time. And also, this is based on a real thing that Capone did early on in his career as a as a mafioso or a gangster. He he'd heard that some uh, some people who he'd been working with were planning to kill him. So he invited them over, got them drunk, and when he got them drunk, he beat them all to death with a baseball bat. And I don't know if he delivered wow. the speech, but he beat them all to death with a baseball is, bat. Is the Chicago White Sox slash Black Sox, that's before this. That's yeah, right. that's, 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 yeah, that's okay. before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But 11 years before. Looks, throws, catches, hustles, part of one big team. You know, we're at this dinner. Everyone's in tuxedos. It's all Mm. beautiful. We're at this round table. He's standing up behind people, and the camera is tracking with him. And then we see these people, and he's holding the baseball bat. And there's just this – it's like with the little girl at the beginning. Like, there's just this moment where you go, oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) it's, the it's like when Ch- it's like when Chucky from Child's Play picks up a knife. You know nothing good is going to happen when that little doll has a knife. Um, and and I want to say the fantastic performances by the guys around that. Oh yeah, table. yeah, yeah. Um, how it just such great stooge work. How. Uh, you know, they're absolutely certain of De Niro's answers after he has given them. Yeah, it's right. like, teamwork. Right. Teamwork. Teamwork. teamwork, teamwork, and teamwork. the guy that ultimately gets it. Do you guys think, what, was he just wrong place, wrong time? No, no, or was that's there the guy from no, the warehouse. That's, that's the, yeah. Is that the guy? Yeah, that's it the is, buffoon yeah. from the warehouse, yes. Oh! He well is, then. Yeah, he is killing him to send a message to everybody else. Like, if you let this happen, this is the end result for you. Yeah. Holy crap, I did not make the connection that it was the same guy. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, and, and what happened, you know, like we have, because we're seeing De Niro, and then we're seeing some of the people going, yeah, teamwork, yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> and then we see this one guy twice, yeah. and De Niro's behind him, and you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. And then... I get nowhere unless the team wins. Team. The violence and brutality of him beating him to death, and the rea- and what's interesting is it's it's worth replaying and watching the reactions around the table because some of the people are just horrified and disgusted and shocked, and some of the people are like, uh huh, yeah, that's yeah. Al, right. One guy says it has like a Jesus Christ reaction. Yeah, that's extreme. Yeah. And what I mean again, De Palma's so good at like the blood and gore on a strange level that's such a high end director in some ways because. I don't know if you if you rewatch any films from the late sixties and seventies, the ketchupness of the blood is so <laughs> distracting yeah. in terms of its fakeness, and the dark burgundy like red red wine blood of this guy's of the fake blood pouring out of this guy's head. I remember at the time like it seemed I just it seemed super real. It seemed like it was just real blood, you know. And well, to me, it point, always felt like blood and brains. Like I mean, frankly. Yeah. In, in yeah, movie. especially uh, the 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 Jesus Christ shot, the Steve Jones 
brought yeah, up. Yeah. I mean, there because the, the bat is still coming down, and you can see sort of the detritus from this guy's head flying. Yeah. And, I, right. and, and the sound mixing, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is on purpose, sounds like he's hitting a home run. <laughs> it's just the sound of the bat hitting the ball. You're right, it's there's that, a pop. Yeah, the pop. It sounds like he's hitting a home run with every strike to give you that even further uh, idea of baseball, even as he's killing this guy. And the thing is, and also, Steve, this is great you bring up, uh, nobody runs away from the table. Yeah. Nobody gets up from the table. They're all just like shocked they but they've i'm seeing most of them probably have seen al do this maybe not the accountant but most of them probably seen al do this so like they're like oh fuck you know like it's scary but they're not going to get up because if they get up they might be next you know and right. i love that too it's well, like a lion a lion killed one gazelle in the group and the rest of the gazelle just freeze in place because right. they're like okay maybe he only eats that one and <laughs> and if we move he will definitely attack us too yeah. you know Oh yeah. Well, they, I mean, they can't move if they if they get up. Then they are clearly not on the team, right? And they will die. Oh, good point. And yeah. and, the, and and the thing I think that this does it does so many things at once. First of all, we have not seen Capone himself be violent, mm -hmm. and now he's seen violent in this incredibly intense and brutal right. way. Right. Um. So so his because all we've seen him is be charming. You know mm -hmm. that he's getting the shave and he's do you know he's chatting with people and reporters are around him and laughing. The other thing I think it does is that this is a very public murder. Yeah. You know, there's a whole bunch of people there. Someone's gonna have to clean up this mess. They're at a hotel or a restaurant right. or it, it it shows how far above the law Capone feels like he is. Right. It's also two dinners juxtaposed together. Oh, great you know, point, it's Steve. dinner yeah. to dinner. And what it really, even though what Capone is doing is he's threatening his men. Emotionally, I think part of what we feel is this is what is coming for the untouchables. Mm. This is what's coming for our guys. Yeah. Great this really scary, brutal guy. I do want to say one last thing, Steve. I think this is the only moment of violence that Capone performs in the entire movie. It is De Niro's simmer just this simmering tension underneath all his exchanges that it you know has all the fear throughout the movie but he only performs this one violent act nitty does everything uh, other than the other violent acts in the movie it is just him doing one thing in this moment yet it carries so much weight it makes it feel like this is on tap in every scene that uh, de niro is in as al capone it's fantastic no johnny i think you make a really good point of that Say if you didn't if you didn't know anything about Al Capone, if you didn't know anything about the TV show or the history, and you're just watching this movie and you're taking it just on the information that's being presented to you, yeah. there's that moment where at the beginning where Capone is cut, but there's reporters there. Yeah, you know? exactly. and so right, right. And so we're so it's interesting because like he's behaving consistent with his words, right. but then why is everyone so terrified? Right. Well, and also something Morris said. Um, this is what he will do to his own guys. Mm. Just imagine what he will do to his enemies. Great point. Yeah. Well, and I think at that point, we're going to end part one of our exploration of the untouchables. As always, you can reach us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for the cinephiles. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where you can hear our cinephile shorts, make suggestions, ask specific questions about our films, and even suggest our what movie we do next. If you want to buy The Untouchables or any other film we've ever done, go to cinephiles.net. You can follow the show at cine underscore files. 
subscribe to the show on iTunes or YouTube. Please, please, please leave your reviews on iTunes. If you haven't already done it, it's super important to keep the show going. And, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at SR Morris, Instagram at SR Morris One. John, how about you? You can always follow me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you want to hear more from me and Shannon, you can go to my YouTube uh, channel, youtube.com slash John Roca Says, where we do the Geek Buddies there or follow or listen to us on the Geek Buddies podcast stream. Shannon, if people wanted to follow you, how would they do that? Yeah, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's at Shannon underscore McClung and on Instagram at Shannon the Geek Buddy. How about you, Mr. Jones? I am Stephen B. Jones. If you want to follow me on Instagram or if you want to check out my website, that's Stephen B. Jones Cartoonist. And I look forward very much to my first appearance on The Geek Buddies. Oh. Coming soon. <laughs> yeah, coming soon. <laughs> Even B. Jones. Yeah, all right, cool. To be well, on the show. All right. I, pr- I purposely created space for Steve to edit that out there. I just, I just... <laughs> <laughs> well, now I have to decide whether it's better in or out. Because if it's in, then I'm going to leave this whole conversation in at this point. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember, like, oh, wait, if I create a little moment there, Steve can cut it out more easily. That's absolutely true. Um, Steve, Shannon, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great to have you as part of this conversation. Um, and I think that is it for this week. We will be back next week with part two of The Untouchables on The Cinephiles. <laughs>